New report, the Suns have interest in TJ McConnell. That's interesting. We'll break down all the angles of that. Plus, Summer League Game 3 for the Pacers, their first loss, but still good Jarris Walker stuff. And some new NBA rules. Are they good? We'll get to it all today on the Locked On Pacers podcast. You are Locked On Pacers, your daily Indiana Pacers podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome of the Locked On Pacers podcast, where we, of course, talk about the Indiana Pacers, as always. My name's Tony East. I cover the team for Forbes and SI, and today, diving into the latest Pacers reporting and rumor from Jake Fisher of Yahoo, TJ McConnell, some interest from the Phoenix Suns. Apparently, we'll dive into that and all the angles of that. Then, Summer League Game 3. The returnees are out for the Pacers, but still some noteworthy guys to cover as the Pacers head into their final two games over this weekend. And two new NBA rules. Are they good or are they bad? I like one. I hate the other. We'll get into that to close out today's show. But we start over at Yahoo Sports with Jake Fisher with reporting on TJ McConnell, who says, well, first of all, he has more stuff on Pascal Siakam and the Pacers' interest there. Uh, go back to Tuesday's podcast for more on Siakam to the Pacers. But Jake Fisher's newest reporting says... The Pacers have been mentioned in another possible trade discussion this week. Phoenix has continued to explore trade scenarios regarding reserve guard campaign, league sources told Yahoo Sports, and Indiana point guard TJ McConnell has been one player on the Suns' radar. There was some talk around Summer League about a developing multi-team trade discussion. Maybe there's some business to be done with the Knicks. And then he has something saying that the Knicks are engaged on trade avenues for Evan Fournier. So the first thing here. Uh, McConnell for Payne is a dumb trade for the Pacers. We don't have to talk about that. That would be stupid. That's trading a player for a worse player, unless there's good assets involved from the Suns. But spoiler alert, the Suns have none of those because they've traded all of them in their other trades. So that's why we have to talk about the why here and the and the, the key details in what Jake actually just said. So if you listen to yesterday's show with Jay Rigdon. We talked about the winners and losers from Pacers free agency so far. And one of the losers categories for me was either Aaron Neesmith or TJ McConnell. And I said either or for the following reason. And that is, if you look at the Pacers rotation, right? Halburn's going to start at the one. He's in the backcourt. And then Matherin's going to play for sure. Nemhard's going to play for sure. Bruce Brown's going to play for sure. And Buddy Heald's going to play for sure. So that's four guys occupying minutes. And if all of them are playing on the wing, like last year where they were twos and threes, then there's no minutes for Aaron Neesmith, and McConnell will be the backup one, but no minutes for Neesmith would be surprising. But if they want to play Neesmith and you have his defense on the floor on the wing, then they can make Nemhard the backup one, and then all those guys would play, and TJ McConnell is suddenly the odd man out. Both of those options I have good reason, I think, if you're the Pacers. One gives you wing defense and you know an up-and-coming youngster, and one gives you a sage veteran point guard, which is an important position to have good talent at, and McConnell's currently their best vet by a decent amount. Like, either of those makes sense. I would not crush the Pacers for picking either path. But it does make good sense that those players would thus have one of the players, whichever one they're deciding on playing or not playing, would have more value to a different team than the Pacers. So I guess it makes sense why a team could target him and why the Pacers would at least listen. I have no idea if they are or are not listening to offers on TJ McConnell, to be totally clear. But I think if they did trade him, the reasoning would make sense. For the reason I just explained, rotationally, there would, they already have all the pieces in place to cover for his absence if he is 
dealt. And so, yeah, he was great last year. TJ McConnell, career-high true shooting, career-high points per game, can push the pace and play their identity off the bench. Nothing about trading TJ McConnell would be that he isn't good for the Pacers. In fact, he was quite good last year, and he can shoot threes now, which is big in Rick Carlisle's system. He is one of the funniest people ever. Like As a teammate, that's a fantastic guy to be around. You know, He's got great synergy with everybody on and off the floor. These are all important things. Right, TJ McConnell is not ever the type of player that you actively shop, but if you have an overloaded team and you don't know who exactly makes the most sense to keep or not keep, I understand hearing it. And if you're the Suns, campaign is more scoring guard, certainly, than floor controller and organizer, and McConnell would be pretty helpful for them. And he could even, in theory, maybe start some games for them at point guard. I don't know exactly what their team will end up looking like. They did get some talented guys in free agency, whatever. It doesn't matter. This isn't a sun show. He would be good for them. He would help them quite a bit. Uh, the salary perspective part of this is very fascinating to me. McConnell at about seven and a half million, a little less than that, campaigned at about six and a half million. So straight up, it is a legal trade, even though it's a stupid trade for the Pacers. And that's where this next part comes in, the multi-team frameworks because what I would imagine in this scenario, like what does campaign add to the Pacers? A depth guard who wouldn't play for like, doesn't make a ton of sense for them to add. If the Suns have the assets to do it straight up, sure. If the assets are right, go for it. But to me, he doesn't make a lot of sense for the Pacers. And that's where the third team would come in. That's where campaign would end up presumably going and then the Pacers could open up a roster spot and hey look George Hill who's a veteran and now they need a depth point guard and look at that um, that is just conjecture for all this to be clear I don't know anything about anything I just think that would make sense but the question is where would campaign go or could the Pacers expand this what would this actually look like and I don't even know that again this is something that could happen um, but Again, it does make sense for the Pacers, and that's why I think it'd be a multi-team framework if it's just the names that Fisher reported between um, trading campaign and wanting TJ McConnell. There would have to be more to this. Now, if you want to throw in the third name involved here, which is Evan Fournier from the Knicks, um, like at the end of last season, I think Fournier was telling reporters in New York like he ex he thought he might get traded, or he told them he thought he might not be back with the team next year. I think he played 27 games for the Knicks, like firmly out of their rotation, totally overpaid asset. They would have to give up something to get off of his money. And so if the trade was, for example, again, just using the names involved, McConnell to Phoenix, Payne to New York, Fournier to the Pacers, the Pacers would suddenly be getting a good asset because they're taking in a lot of money. And Fournier, would there be no expectations of him playing on the Pacers, which could, in theory, clear up a logjam, but he's not like an embarrassing depth option if you have injuries. The problem with what I just said and laid out is McConnell for Fournier is an illegal trade. The Pacers do not have enough cap space to actually do that. They would have to include more, about $3 million more. Um, hey, look, Jordan Warren makes $3 million. Um, I'm not saying this is something that should or shouldn't happen, but using the pieces Jake discussed, the framework to me would be something like McConnell plus salary to the Knicks, or McConnell to the Suns, some other salary to the Knicks, Fournier to the Pacers, some second rounders or a good second rounder or very crappy protected first along with Fournier to the Pacers. And then Payne also goes to the Knicks. And there'd have to be some other stuff for like the touching purposes of a three-team trade. But like that's not a ridiculous framework. I just think that the asset value coming back to the Pacers would have to be right for them to consider something like that because they'd be adding money 
and they'd be adding a player who would just not play for them, and that is typically not smart. Adding expensive bad players is not good business. Um, Evan Fournier is not a bad player. Adding expensive players who wouldn't play is not good business unless the asset value makes it worth it. So I think having interest in McConnell makes sense because there's a chance that minutes dry up for him this year, depending on how the Pacers go with their rotation. Campaign does not make sense for the Pacers, so that's why this would have to be a multi-team trade. And the asset price has to be right because I think McConnell does have value to the Pacers. And if you've listened to Lockdown Pacers for a while, if you're an everydayer, I talk a lot about how important I think point guard play is. And all of a sudden, the Pacers got a good point guard. And look, they're much better. Like having good, not even necessarily just point guard, but just a solid lead ball handler, a guy who's controlling the ball all the time is so important. And having a good one off the bench is so valuable. The year the Pacers sputtered out that first year under Carlisle, they were about 14 and 16. They suddenly had to turn to Brad Wanamaker off the bench. Those minutes went terrible. Their season went awry soon after that, right? Having quality ball handling play as often as possible is critical. You don't just trade TJ McConnell to trade TJ McConnell. You trade TJ McConnell because you're getting good assets back and you're balancing your team at the same time. If you're accomplishing enough goals and it makes sense, sure. But I don't necessarily know exactly what that value is or how much validity there actually is to this, but I wanted to cover it because one, Jake has a very good um, track record of reporting, one, and two, it would make sense why the Pacers would sniff into something like this, just given their backcourt rotation, given the balance of their team, given where they could be headed as the offseason progresses. We're two weeks in to the offseason now, if you can believe that. We're in basically the trade-only portion. There's a couple good players, certainly, who are looking for where the minutes could be or where the money could be. We'll see if that actually happens. Like I think most of the recent signings are two ways and minimums, but trade stuff could still happen as the offseason progresses. Let's talk about an actual basketball game. Yesterday, Jay and I did not. Today, we'll get back into actual basketball. Summer League Game 3 happened on Thursday. No, Wednesday. My bad. Uh, no more of three returnees, but still lots of fun takeaways from that game, even though it was the first Pacers loss. We'll get to that here in the second segment. Jarris Walker, once again, stat machine. Before we get to that, though, want to talk to you guys about Bird Dogs. Bird Dogs makes you look good and feel good with some of the best shorts and pants out there. Their stretch khaki shorts, for example, which I have two pairs of, are designed to fit slimmer through the thigh and leg, giving you a truly sculpted look. Their shorts do the exact same thing as Lululemon shorts, but they fit so much better. They fit way better than regular shorts that are made of stiff, restricting cotton, and they fixed the issue of those kind of shorts by inventing their own cloud knit fabric that looks just like khaki but stretches. So you get a way slimmer fit without having to sacrifice any movement. Walked around all day in them on a trip a few weeks ago. They're fantastic. I was hardly sweating at all because they have an anti-stink sweat wicking fabric. Keeps you cool and dry all day long. Go try them yourself. Birddogs.com slash LockdownNBA. Or when you check out there, enter the promo code LockdownNBA. Not only will you get the shorts or pants, you'll get a Yeti-style tumbler. I have one in the other room. TheBirdDogs.com slash LockdownNBA or promo code LockdownNBA for a free Yeti-style tumbler. You won't want to take your bird dogs off. I can promise you that. Thank you, as always, for making Lockdown Pacers your first listen today and every single day. For your second listen, Lockdown Nuggets. One, because they made the most recent transaction I could think of, signing Braxton Key to a two-way contract today. Third two-way for Braxton Key, and he just hit a game winner for the Mavs. Why do I know Braxton Key had two two-ways before? I don't know. Uh, but also, they won the championship and deserve more love because we just go straight from that to the draft and free agency, and that bugs me sometimes. Lockdown Nuggets, Adam Mares and Matt Moore do a great job. Let's talk about Summer League. Not going to do full game recaps for these games that do not have the returning players. I didn't even do a full recap of Game 2, which did have some of the returning players. But in Game 3, 
Matherin was done, Jackson was done, and Nemhard was done. So the rotation was changed. We got to see Eli Brooks and Robert Woodard and Nate Lejewski and Ethan Thompson all for the first time. That bench group was not very good. That was a big story of the game. In the first half, they were right with the Thunder. The bench group came in. The lead went from three to like 14 before the starters came back in. And then it was 11-point deficit at halftime. And then they played an even second half. Like that bench, the bench did better in the third quarter. Isaiah Wong talked about that on the broadcast, but that stretch they had in the late first was brutal. Uh, either way, an interesting game, I think, for the Pacers in this second summer league game because they had some solid performances and some new stuff happening, right? This is something about summer league I like the evolution of. This happened to Matherin last year. He was off the ball at first when Duarte and Brissett were playing, and then when they were done and other guys were done, he moved more on the ball and got to explore his game and look really good. And lo and behold, that happened with Jairus Walker, who's not thought of as much in that vein, but you could kind of see him moving a little more to point forward in this game. He ran some four, five pick and rolls with Oscar Shibwe, which was really fun and enjoyable and sometimes great and sometimes not so great. Um, but I thought that the thing that was interesting about it is some of them were great, right? Sometimes he did have good ball handling moments. Like he was pushing in transition with the ball. I thought that was fascinating that he just caught it and went. Um, I like that he was running those pick and rolls. Here's my exact notes. Walker running PNRs, some good, some brutal. That's <laughs> like they were not the prettiest at times, but they were effective at times as well. Uh, he did finish with three turnovers and only two assists to like put some context on that, but he was finding ways to score. He had 20 points. He did miss a bunch of shots. But in general, I like that they're exploring that and seeing what he can do. He did some point Jarrah stuff, and it was interesting. Like the way I would describe it is he either sees his read right away, right? Whether that's attack the basket, pass, throw something reset whatever but he either sees it right away or he like takes one hard dribble and then kind of resets they're not like advanced passes a lot of just standard ones but in general hey that's the whole point of exploring him as a ball handler figure out what you have figure out how well he can do all sorts of stuff like that he led the team in minutes he finished with 20 points nine boards two assists and one steal in this game they did get smoked in his minutes he was eight for 19 now through three games of summer league Jarris walker's stats 14.7 points 8.7 rebounds, 3.7 assists, 1.7 steals, 1.3 blocks. Great stuff uh, from Jarris Walker so far. It's been fun to see him explore all the aspects of his game. And even though it's leading to some of his worst moments, it's also showing what he could end up being one day in the league. The other important guy a lot of people were watching, the other first-round pick, Ben Shepard, back to invisibility a bit in this game. In a different way, though. The first game he was invisible, he couldn't figure out where to get open or how to get the ball. He only had four shots in one point in that game. This game, he found the shots two for nine from the field, though, one for five from deep. His defense definitely is going to need some work. Not a good night for him, and I think, honestly, the more concerning part for him, for me, from an analysis perspective and a talking about him perspective is I had no notes on his game, right? He kind of felt invisible at times, didn't realize he was out there to the extent that I didn't notice anything from him on either end of the floor that I thought, oh, I want to chronicle that and make sure I talk about it. And he had that invisibility problem in the first game too. I'm trying to figure out why. Like there should be enough times on defense where he's around the ball or at least a couple times where he gets a touch on offense that I notice something. So I don't know if it's just that my expectations for him are not the highest, even though I thought he'd shoot better than this, or if it's just he's not around the play very much. I don't know, but I just I thought I'd see a, a, a little more from him, I suppose, but I didn't even hardly notice him in this game, and I thought that was pretty noteworthy. He's had two stinkers in one great game in Summer League. We'll see what happens. Here in Game 4, those are the only two returning starters. The other three all changed at center. Instead of Isaiah Jackson, it was Oscar Shibwe, who's on a two-way contract for the Pacers this coming season. Someone... Excuse me. Someone DM'd me this this season. I had no idea. 
uh, this season. This today, about Sheboy and Summer League, I had no idea. He's not missed a shot yet. <laughs> he is he is a, shooting a hundred percent from the field through three games. He's seven for seven. That's not a ton of shots, but uh, his rebounding is the standout thing. In twelve minutes per game, he's averaging seven rebounds per game. In this game, he played sixteen minutes and had eleven. Right, like that's his thing. That was his thing, in Kentucky. That's been his thing forever. The ball comes off the rim, he's going to get it. He had eleven rebounds and one assist. <laughs> Those were his only non-scoring stats. He had six points on three for three from the field. Like to me, it was very obvious what he was going to be in year one of a two-way deal, and that's exactly what he's been in, in with the Summer Pacers. He's a beast on the glass. He's a decent screen setter, and he's got to work on pretty much everything else in terms of the playmaking, the scoring from away from the rim, the defense away from the rim, all of that stuff that you'd like to see more of from him. But again, I, encouraging how good he can be on the glass in very limited chances. Right, that is. A very impressive thing that he's doing. Uh, Kendall Brown started for Benedict Matherin. This was his worst game of summer league to me by a healthy amount. He was three for 10 from the field, two rebounds, three steals, and three blocks. His defense is awesome all of summer league. Like That is where uh, I, I hate to keep beating this drum, something I thought highly of him last year, something that his stats pop off the page throughout summer league. He's at almost three blocks per game through three games. But the offense was rough in this one. Some poor decision-making, uh, some yucky turnovers, uh, and not so great plays. He finished with 12 points plus two for the night. Isaiah Wong started and Andrew Nemhart's placed the other two-way contract guy. Though, so the five guys I just said, two of them are on two-way deals, two of them are first-round picks, and one's Kendall Brown, who, again, my prediction is he gets the last two-way slot. I don't know that. I don't know what the Pacers are necessarily thinking. But uh, so those five guys all could be within the Pacers kind of orbit this year. Wong started at the one. Uh, I don't. I still don't really consider him point guardy. He did have four assists in this game, but he was solid scoring finally in this one. Three for six from deep, seven for 13 from the field on his way to 17 points. That's kind of the profile I expect from him on a two-way. He'll be a good scoring guard. He'll put up some good scoring numbers in the G League, but I would like to see him develop his playmaking. He did have some nice assists in this game. Four assists actually led the Pacers, who shot horribly, 37.9% from the field. You could tell without the NBA guys, how much they struggled to create good shots, right? They were really struggling um, with all sorts of stuff like that. It was good to see Wong look more comfortable. And I liked uh, something to go back to Shiway. I liked his defensive activity and improvement. So that's all the notes I had about the starters. I actually did have something about a Ben Shepard floater footwork that I didn't realize was it's too nitty gritty for this show. But is something in my notes. The bench guys, um, the ones you might have heard of if you've been really, really into the Pacers for years and years. Eli Brooks was with the Mad Ants last year. Uh, he had six points, two rebounds, two assists, two for five shooting. He's fine. Uh, and then Robert Woodard, who's been in the NBA for two years. He spent two seasons with the Sacramento Kings, I believe. Maybe the Thunder. I can't remember. Um, he had moments where he looked like a guy who's in the NBA before. He had eight rebounds and was really active, but his shot was not falling at all. And so it was a little awkward for him at times. He was two for nine from the field. He played 23 minutes. He played more than two different Pacers starters. Mojave King, their 47th pick, was off in this one. He continues to look smooth to me, but the shot's not going in. He was two for nine with seven points. And then Nate Lajewski and Ethan Thompson. Thompson actually finished in place. He had nine points, but neither of them were really so impactful or uh, it's it's clear what their future is going to be. In general, that bench group really struggled. Uh, Woodard had some shifty moments. Uh, which I thought were noteworthy, I suppose. And King is worth watching because the Pacers drafted him and have his draft rights, but his shot was not falling in this game. Going forward, I think the big things are just going to be any reps with any of the guys who project to be on the team with the ball and any growth of play 
creation. They could not create good shots for their life in this game. They were really struggling getting late into the shot clock a lot. That will be something that's important. I think that goes on Wong and Walker, who are going to be, one, the creators, and two, the guys that their creation long-term kind of matters for their NBA and Pacers chances going forward. Obviously, Walker's going to have lots of chances, but his upside is a little bit tied to what he can do on the offensive end of the floor. Every player is worth watching, though. They play again tonight against Dallas at 7, and then one more game at a date TBD. I think, I think, I don't know, that they're eliminated from the playoffs already because there's three undefeated teams. Uh, But I think if they completely dominate the Mavs, maybe they can get into tiebreakers for the last spot. But if they don't, which is the exceedingly likely situation, uh, they could just play their final game Sunday or Monday. We'll see how the schedule shakes out for the Summer Pacers. So we'll recap Game 4 on next Monday's show and then do a full Summer League recap with TBD on the following day. Let's close out today's show talking about two new NBA rules. One that fans have wanted for a while that I hate and one that fans have wanted for a while that I love. Flopping and challenges. It's coming up to close out today's show. Before we get to that, though, I want to really quickly talk to you guys about FanDuel. Take your first swing at betting MLB on FanDuel and get 10 times your first bet amount in bonus bets. That's up to $200. That's right. Just bet $20. bucks, you will end $200 in bonus bets. Win or lose, that's $200. You can spend betting everything from the money line to the over-under to who you think is going to be the first home run all on an app that's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Plus, when you win, you can get paid instantly. There's no better place to bet on MLB than FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. So sign up today and visit FanDuel.com slash LockedOn to get up to $200 in bonus bets. That's FanDuel.com slash LockedOn. FanDuel, official partner of Major League Baseball. Thank you, as always. For making Lockdown Pacers your first listen today and every single day. For your second listen, jump on over to Lockdown Suns. Here's the other side of what I said about the McConnell stuff. What would the Suns be interested in in potential campaign McConnell shenanigans as they try to build their team towards being a contender this season? I've talked about a couple new NBA rules, uh, changes, I suppose, NBA changes earlier this week with the mid-season tournament that was announced while I was in Vegas. A lot of buzz about that. The last day I was there... The rule changes coming for this season got like mostly leaked out. I don't think they became official until a little bit later. In fact, the NBA's official announcement was uh, the day I left. So a little bit of chatter before, but it didn't become official until after. But I do want to talk about it. I do like covering league things that I think will matter uh, to the Pacers and just to discuss them in general. And that is two new NBA rules coming this year, one regarding flopping and one regarding the coaches' challenge. I love... The flopping rules. Absolutely love them. I can't stand it. Game five of the final, seeing Kyle Lowry throw his body all around in ridiculous angles. And there's that gif of, I want to say it's Grant Williams who gets like not hit with the ball and then like flings his head back so ridiculously. I can't stand it. I cannot stand it. It looks ridiculous. It makes the league look stupid, especially when they're called and it actually like affects the game. It's stupid. It sucks. It should not be a strategy. And now a game official can call a flop or as they have called it, a physical act that reasonably appears to be intended to cause the officials to call a foul on a player, and the guy who does flop will be charged with an unsportsmanlike tech. The other team gets a free throw attempt, um, and the player won't be ejected for flopping, but that's good. Free throws, right? An actual punishment the other direction. And the best part about this, they don't have to stop the game to immediately review flopping. They can come back to it later at a neutral stoppage of live play, and then they can resume after the tech free throw. That is awesome. 
right? Then if these happen, the game doesn't have to reduce flow, but there can still be ample punishment for just stupid, what are you doing, this is dumb, flops, that's fantastic. There's also, um, they can call a foul and flopping on the same play, which is also good. So it's like sold contact, even if it's rewarded, is it not necessarily rewarded? And it cannot be reviewed by challenges, and it could still be met with the fine that the league can do for flops. It's perfect. It doubles down on the punishments. It actually has an in-game impact now if you do it terribly. It's just fantastic to me, especially because that little delay that it won't be live. It's trial basis, but I think this is a win for the league. I think it's huge, and I think it'll get rid of some junk. They already called a couple in Summer League. The first one is on Lester Quinones. I wrote his name down. I've heard Chris Duarte say it before. I had to get it right. Quinones, um, which was pretty cool. So they were really, you know, it was funny. I heard Nate Duncan talking about this on Dunk Dunk. Like the rest of that game, after he was called for a flopping tech, like every time the refs blew a whistle for a foul, all the players were like pointing at the guy who drew the contact. And they were like, flopping tech, call the tech. So that'll be funny to see how much that matters. Or if the league can actually enforce this for longer than a couple weeks, right? They've had that issue with new rules where they're really on top of it early and then it kind of fades away. We'll see. But I love this. I hope this sticks. I hope it goes well. And I hope it actually has the intended effect of deterring flops that are just so ridiculous that it like actually stains the game and ends up on not top 10 and stuff like that. And it's not actually that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. But it is something I'm glad the league is stepping in and trying to change. The other rule change I hate. And fans have wanted this for forever. And I'm the only one who doesn't, I think. Coaches' challenges have been changed. Um, sort of. So it's still the same. You can challenge plays if you think the call's wrong. That's great, I suppose. Uh, it's now expanded. You can get a second challenge if your first one is successful, right? A lot of times if there was a stupid or questionable call in the first quarter, coaches would not challenge it. They would hold their challenge till the fourth. And that sometimes is the right strategy. It's interesting because a challenge is worth the same number of points at any time, but it could be more a crucial moment late or you know, it's even like, a good time to organize your team, and if we lose the challenge, like it has more value potentially late in the game. But you know, it, it often went unused because there's only one, and you couldn't get it back. Now, you have to get the first one right, of course, uh, but you get it back if it's right, uh, and you have to still have that timeout available. And so, I hate this. <laughs> I get why people like it, right? You shouldn't be punished, air quotes, for getting it right and then having to use one again. And really. That does not reach the core part of this, which is just like getting more calls right, I suppose. I think refs are awesome. Like I very, very rarely complain about refs. If you listen to the show, you know that like it's such a hard job, and I really think they do a lot better than given credit for, for an on-the-fly hard job like that. Um, and I generally think there's consistent enforcement throughout each individual game. Obviously, from game to game, it's different because there's different refs. But either way, I'm mostly very pro-NBA officiating. I just think that game flow is too poor with these challenges and reviews. And yeah, there's going to be maybe these reviews for flopping, but I said the key part of it, it's already, they won't do it until a stoppage that's already built into the game. So it's not like it, that will reduce game flow in a way that a challenge can, and it takes forever and it's long and it sucks. And I just, I, I get why they did it and I get why fans really want it. Right. And I get why every, like in a dream world, every call is exactly right, right away on the court. And that would speed up game flow. Certainly. Like I get all that. And I, I guess 
being right is the best outcome, right? I I guess getting every call as right as possible is theoretically the best balancing act for the league. And I can't argue with that. I understand why that's the best. I just get so frustrated with all the stoppages and slowages in these key moments like we did years and years of NBA and pro basketball in general without all these challenges and stuff. And I don't know. I, I get it. It's fine, I suppose, but I really don't like it. I want the game to speed up a little bit uh, at sometimes when it's just so bogged down and there's so many reviews and there's so much stoppages. We'll see how much this actually changes game flow and if I'm just being whiny, but um, I think it could be good in terms of getting calls right. And of course, that is the ultimate goal of every game and every referee interaction. So those are the two new rules. Pacers don't have any floppers on their team. Rick's pretty good at challenges. He's got a whole guy who reviews all that stuff. Every team does. So that's all great. We'll see what this actually means for the league this year. I'm really psyched about the flopping rule, though. Uh, next Monday. So can you believe it? For the first time since about the draft, we'll take the weekend off like normal here on Locked on Pacers. Next Monday, I want to talk about a couple things. Uh, the Chris Duarte era with the Pacers era, in air quotes. It was only two seasons. And what kind of went wrong or changed from year one to two. We'll talk about the Pacers' finer, final summer league games on that show, or game in singular, if there's only one. And then we will... Talk about something I've been reading about and thinking about, and that is the Damian Lillard era in Portland and how the the Blazers made a lot of good moves from 2016 to now, and yet they're in a spot where their team is not built properly around a star. And what lessons the Pacers can learn from it, because I think there's a big one, and Zach Lowe nailed it writing about this for ESPN yesterday. That's a big takeaway the Pacers can learn from as they themselves try to build around Tyrese Halliburton. Really looking forward to that the following day, Summer League recap, and then we'll talk about some other off-season-y stuff next week. Should be really fun. Speaking of Chris Duarte, if you want more talk on that, Locked On Kings. Matt George and I did a combo on Chris Duarte for the Locked On Sacramento Kings show, how I think he'll fit with the Kings, all sorts of fun stuff if you want more content there, talking hoops and Chris Duarte. Thank you all so much for listening. Hope you're enjoying the Summer League and off-season content. Have a fantastic weekend. We will see you on Monday.